This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is all theater. It's all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Mark McKinnon is a man who knows his way around campaigns and politics. In a previous life, he was an advisor to folks like Congressman Lloyd Doggett, Texas Governor Ann Richards, Governor, then President George W. Bush, and the iconic senator from my home state, John McCain of Arizona. Now a co-host for the Showtime political documentary series, The Circus, he joins us today to talk about President Joe Biden's first 100 days, Biden's speech to a joint address of Congress on Wednesday evening, and the current political climate. Mark, it's nice to welcome a fellow man of the West to political theater. <laughs> Thanks for putting me on the dance card. <laughs> so the speech, I mean, this was this was one of those things like, you know, we I don't know how many of these you've tuned into, been there for, you know, helped, you know, advise on, uh, attended. Uh, this was one that we'll remember for a while not so much the the content because it was it eventually became kind of a standard address to Congress by a president, but the first two women uh, on the dais behind him of, of Vice President, the Speaker Kamala Harris and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi. Just this, the, how spread out it was, how few people were there because of COVID. Uh, what was just just you know on a personal level, you've again you've seen a lot of these speeches. What was going through your mind as you as you're watching this speech? Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, a, a lot went through my mind. This was historic in a lot of ways. But one of the things that went through my mind is, yeah, you're right. I've seen a lot of these. But Joe Biden has seen 48 of them in person, right? So this is his like 48th time to be in that chamber for that speech, except this time he was the one delivering the speech. And the thing that strikes me most about the speech, the first 100 days of the Biden presidency altogether is just how different this all is and was compared to what we might have thought six months ago about Joe Biden. I think we all thought, and I think he thought that if he were elected, he was going to be a transitional president. And I think he even said that at one point in the campaign, sort of an incremental guy that would do incremental things, given kind of the nature of the country and the polarization. And what's happened is that he has gone from being transitional to transformational, at least in ambition. And that's what we saw in the speech was that, you know, been a lot of comparisons to FDR. But but Biden has kind of throughout his career, I think one of the things that may be part of his experience of being there 48 times is he kind of like deals with the art of the possible. And he was a man for the moment in the campaign and kind of rose to the moment in that 48 hours in South Carolina and that's sort of what's happening with his presidency, too. I think he's just adapted to the moment. And so, uh, you know, and, and we know from reporting that he's been having sort of meetings with historians and he's really trying to figure out what, given the circumstances that we've inherited, what what is possible? And 
And the thing that really was completely striking to everybody last night was just how big he went. You know, he went, I don't think he could go any bigger, right? I mean, in terms of sort of the canvas that he laid out last night. And that's, of course, what Republicans are going to jump on just to say this is, this is you know, completely a Pandora's tax and spend box. And this is just nutty. But, you know, I, again, I think that uh, I think Biden just laid it all out. And, you know, the with the with the expectation, of course, that that not all or maybe even much of it will get done, but some of it will and some of it may be enough. Yeah. I, and, you know, he was able to get through, you know, this one point nine trillion dollar package early, you know, you know, again, we're, we're at day, this is day 100, right? So, you know, that, that was a, you know, sort of a big accomplishment, uh, you know, including, you know, $1,400 checks to the neediest people, uh, you know, very tangible things, uh, extending, you know, the Affordable Care Act signups, you know, uh, so that people who had lost their jobs or, or lost their health insurance could sign up more easily. Uh, so he has like these tangible wins and then, and then he's like, "All right, now we're gonna keep going." <laughs> as, as you said, that's a that is less transition and it is more transformational. Um, but it's just not. I mean, even if, even in a closely divided you know Senate and House where they can they can pass things through the reconciliation budget process, which enables them to basically you know not worry about a filibuster. Um, it's not. It's not that easy. I mean, there were a lot of shots at Joe Manchin taking notes. Uh, <laughs> like, what would you make of that? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, somebody was saying that there should have been a, a, a camera dedicated to Joe Manchin for the whole season. The Manch cam. <laughs> uh, the Manch cam, right, exactly. Well, I mean, that's that's the reality of this, right? I mean, first of all, think about this. The most pressing uh, crisis that's faced the country, arguably in decades, is the, the, the pandemic, right? And the relief package to address the, the greatest crisis has ever confronted this country got zero Republican votes. So, if, you know, if that was the crisis of, uh, you know, of, of decades and couldn't get a single Republican vote, it's hard to imagine going forward South, some of these other things uh, are, are likely to get any either. I mean, Biden tried to kind of present this as being, you know, equivalent to the 1930s. It's really not. I mean, you know, when FDR came in with what he did, they were kind of at the bottom of the trough. We're we're really coming out of this thing right now, and employment's, you know, boosting, and the economy's roaring, and and you know, so now these are all sort of like additional uh, things to hang on the tree. Um, so the point is that, uh, to your point, uh, it's hard to see how Biden gets really much, if any, support for any of these ideas going forward, and so. Then it gets into, you know, very arcane stuff about reconciliation and what can be reconciled and, you know, if you can't get any Republican votes. And then ultimately what I think down the line happens is, I mean, listen, again, I'm just kind of putting on my old, you know, campaign hat and and reality check here, which is 2022 is right around the corner. Um, You know, it's... uh, in terms of practical real politic, which means that if I'm one of Biden's advisors, I'm lo- I'm sitting down with him and saying, look, I don't care how well things go in the next year and a half. There's probably going to be a Republican Congress a year and a half from now uh, for all the obvious reasons, historical reapportionment, all of that. 
So whatever we're going to do, we got to get done in the next year and a half. And I think this is going to, they, they will, you know, again, get caught trying to work with Republicans. They'll exhaust that and it won't work. And then they'll do through reconciliation, whatever they can. And I think the practical reality of what is possible there is there, there'll probably be a skinny down um, infrastructure bill that might be mostly, you know, bricks and mortar. You know, just sort of like a one trillion dollar package that Repub- enough Republicans can get on board that maybe they can get eight or nine to get on board for a skinny down infrastructure bill by itself. But that'll be it. It, 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 you know, and it, even if if they can even get that, and then I think what happens is, again, quite soon they've got all these other ambitions, you know, the voting rights bill, all this other stuff, and then they say, well, you know, either it's not going to happen or we kill the filibuster, and that that that'll get pretty interesting, I think. And obviously, there's a lot of resistance to that, including and especially Mansion and Cinema from your old home state. So, but, you know, once faced with that prospect of saying we either get nothing else done for the rest of our presidency or we kill the filibuster. And at that point, again, kind of getting political again, I, you know, I've never I haven't done a campaign in my entire life where people were like, give me the filibuster. Give me the filibuster. People don't know what the hell the filibuster is. It's, you know, it's this arcane inside the Beltway Washington process thing that nobody even understands, much less cares about. So. If I were advising at that point, I'd say, screw it, kill it. If they even have the votes for it, too, you know, because yeah. there is there is the, the thing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I wonder, like, again, the, you know, history would suggest that the Republicans are probably going to be in for, you know, a better midterm election than, than the Democrats, just the way things uh, typically go and also with, with different shifts uh, in, in the country and where, where they're going. I mean, we don't know what the lines are going to look like, uh, but it's, I, I wonder is from a campaign advisor's perspective perspective is it enough for republicans to just say no for the next year and a half to everything that biden has i mean like the, I, I just the image that sticks in my mind last night was of mitch mcconnell just you know kind of sitting there dour with his surgical mask <laughs> like is that if that's and, and then ted cruz falling asleep you know if if that if that's the if that's the republican line and then you have tim scott kind of saying no, we're not racist. I mean, is that enough for Republicans to run on? <laughs> Good question, and I, and I think you're right. I mean, what we, everything we've heard so far has nothing to do with the future vision of the Republican Party. And as a Republican trying desperately to be a Republican still, it drives me crazy that it's so backward looking, and there, you know, that there there needs to be something, you know, a blueprint. That gives people an idea of what Republicans stand for. It may be enough for 2022. It's not. I don't think it's enough for 2024. For 2024, and unless Republicans really kind of reinvent themselves, I'm not sure I'll see another Republican president in my lifetime, uh, because it's just gotten into a demographic cul-de-sac, uh, which is problematic. Now, I, I do think that you know, for again, for 2022, it may be enough. I mean, the, the, it, particularly because. The ambitions are so big that I think it, you know, it could sort of give enough people enough sort of pause to say, now, hold on a second. You know, I, I know we had to do some pandemic relief, but listen, jobs are doing just fine and the economy's coming back and let's not screw this up. And I think that's kind of going to be what the Republicans are going to say. It'll be just to say, whoa, folks, you know, Biden's just, you know, they're going crazy here. 
things are in relatively good shape. Let's not screw this up by going, you know, off the cliff. And, and I, and like I say, that may be enough for 2022. I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, that, that you're, you'd, if you had to, you know, maybe bet, you'd think that a slim down infrastructure package will pa- will pass in the next, you know, like you know, several months or so. Shelley Moore Capito, uh, one of the uh, Republican senators uh, uh, who's been from West Virginia, she's been pushing, you know, an alternative infrastructure package that you know that we'll probably get some detail on fairly soon. Uh, I mean, it's about a quarter the size of what <laughs> Biden and the Democrats have are, are talking about. Um, I, I'm curious what your your read is. Like, it seems like Biden is almost reacting to the way things went in the first few years of the Obama administration when he was vice president, when they spent all this time courting, you know, Susan Collins, Olympia Snow, Chuck Grassley, you know, Warren Hatch to try to get on board the ACA or the Affordable Care Act and, and, and you know, different stimulus packages. And it, it just ended up, like, they ended up with nothing. <laughs> and then And then Obama didn't go on the road and say, like, hey, look what we got. It seems like, one, they're just like, okay, we'll listen to Republicans, but we're going to do our own thing. And then Biden isn't even waiting to tout things. He's on the road today in Georgia. You know, he's going to do a rally today with, you know, in, in outside of Atlanta. And then he's going to go visit Jimmy Carter tomorrow. You know, he's going to be at an Amtrak thing. I mean, he's just like, he's, a, he's on the roadshow already. Well, there's no question that, uh, that Biden has uh, learned a lot of lessons from the administration he was a part of. And uh, as take those lessons to heart, and it's quite clear that that Biden is again going to try and get caught trying, uh, but he's not going to wait, and he's not going to lose the opportunity. And so he knows. Again, this is forty three years of forty eight years of experience of being there, and so he knows and he's learned. And you know, the, the real irony of all of this, of course, is that Obama was supposed to be the transformational president. <laughs> And, and it's just they're, they're flipping roles here, right? I mean, Obama really became kind of incremental because of the, those sort of mistakes that he made, but and it, which has allowed Biden to be the transformational one, having learned from those mistakes. Yeah, and I, you know, one of the things that I was struck by Biden, I think, won in large part, you know, because he kind of kept his ha- head down and was was calm, and and he let. Trump define himself, you know, w- w- you know, which he had already done, but it, you know, Trump became more Trumpy <laughs> over the course of the campaign, and Biden was just like, "Hey, I'm just working on my white papers here," you know. <laughs> um, and I wonder, like, you know, you you still, you know, like, you still got a lot of friends in in Congress and in politics and so forth. Uh, Dr. Side, whatever. Do you think that there's just this this sign of relief, this sigh of relief that even if they would rather have a Republican president, I mean, we saw this the moment with Liz Cheney where they were, you know, we were talking, you know, when Biden came into the chamber and then on his way out, this Republican congressman, uh, I think Troy Nels is his name, you know, he he said, I want to help you with, with you know, the police reform stuff. And Biden's like, well, I don't want to hurt your reputation. <laughs> like, do you think there's just this weird sigh of relief? Like, oh, wow, we can talk to this guy. There's no question about it. And I hear from my friends who are my Republican friends who are in Congress that, that there is they can't they can't say it out loud, but there is a palpable sense of relief among all members that it's just the the temperature's just gone way down. And they know that they can talk to Biden, that he's a reasonable guy, um, that, you know, despite the kind of breadth of these proposals that at the end of the day, he's, you know, he's a negotiator and he'll listen. Uh, and, you know, 
even though they had the power with Trump, it just he drove them crazy too. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just just to have a little bit of predictability and kind of you know you know be, to be able to get up in the morning and not have to read ten tweets that were you know put out at four in the morning uh, that were completely off script. It's just this just this is like there's there's just some predictability in the market, you know, that in the political market now that's been absent that that I think everybody appreciates. And I, I mean, I'll note too, I mean, I, I saw the, the speech as prepared for delivery and then listened to it and he went off script. I mean, Biden went off script almost as much as Trump has in certain, in some of his, um, in some of his speeches, uh, you know, even down to the last line, thank you for your patience. I mean, like there's almost like a Jeb, you know, please clap kind of moment there. <laughs> but Biden seems to get away with it. Like, I, and I I mean, I realize that's kind of the brand, right? That like it, he's he's a grandfather-like figure. Um, and it, it, the country is so young and changing that you would think that that wouldn't work. But it seems to be working at least at this point, 100 days in. You know, the... I mean, when you get 200 million vaccines in arms, that's, I mean, you can, you can almost do, you, you've got a little bit of leeway, right? <laughs> yeah. And that was a, you know, a very smart thing to, you know, create a very achievable target. Uh, Trump actually ought to get a little bit of credit for that, which I, I would love to have seen Biden do. It would have been very magnanimous, but uh, not surprised that he didn't. The 200 million shots is like, I, I've, I, because I just came back from Phoenix, it was my first trip uh, since the pandemic. Uh, I was visiting uh, family. And I, I feel like it's the it's American Airlines saying, oh yeah, on the trip from Phoenix to DC, it's going to take four and a half hours. I'm like, it always takes three hours and 15 minutes. You're just saying that so you can build in <laughs> like time yes. and, and make it look like you're really early when you're basically, you know it takes about three and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, and that's just, that's, that's smart politics. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And um, so- but again, I think that Biden is just, you know, he's, it's working because he's coming in as kind of the healer in chief and just saying, OK, I'm going to put a I'm going to put a thermometer in your mouth and we're going to take your temperature and we're going to lower the heat. and We're going to bring the fever down. And, you know, part of the problem for Republicans is that he, Biden is just a hard guy to hate. You know, he's just not that scary, uh, which, of course, is why he won the, the, the Democratic nomination. And I tell my Democratic friends they should be praying every day that Biden got the nomination because I don't think anybody else would have won it. And and he's the only one who could be where we are today, I think, uh, given his his experience and his and his tone and approach, which is just, I think, again, sort of appreciated across the aisle. And you know, as as somebody who uh, is now covering this too, uh, as part of as part of the circus, um, Trump never left you for want of material. <laughs> Are you worried about a little bit of a drop off uh, in terms of the heat, well, 100%, heat and light? <laughs> 100. Yes, it's a surprise to me, but it's, I sort of feel like the difference is that that people have gone from watching our show because it was kind of like a Stephen King horror novel. And now it's like a Hallmark movie. You know? <laughs> With like, the occasional insur- violent insurrection to start thing, kick things off. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh man. You know, that's just funny. You mentioned the insurrection. The one of the, the just crazy things of the circus has been our just luck of timing. I pitched the show for 13 years and they green lighted it, you know, for that election that turned out to be, the most surprising cliffhanging election uh, of, of all time with an asterisk to 2000. But um, uh, 
when we were asked to come back uh, in for the Biden presidency, I was like, well, let's start with the, uh, you know, the inaugural. And they were like, no, let's come back a couple of weeks early. And I was like, ah, that's going to be way too early. Nobody's going to be interested. And then, of course, that was the week that the insurrection happened. And it turns out to be the best episode we've ever produced. Before I let you go, um, just curious, like in the next, in the next month, you know, like we're, we're, I mean, you, you, you talked about how like the really 2022 is already with us, right? I and mean, we got the census numbers, like there's a scramble already. People don't know whether they're running or, uh, you know, or, or not, you know, depending on how the lines are drawn. Politics never sleeps. I like, I like to say, uh, and and but we also have this legislative agenda. If you had to just pick one story that you were going to sort of follow in the next month or so, what would it be? Um, well, not only does politics never sleep, I think politics is like, you know, snorted a bag of methamphetamine. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and it's like never sleeps. I, I'm, I'm really interested in kind of all the voting legislation that's been happening in different states and kind of what's happening and also in Arizona right mm-hmm. now on this crazy audit. Oh, man. <laughs> um, there's, there's just, I think there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation about what's happening. And it's just something I take a, a lot of interest in. I'm, I'm in Colorado where I think it's like the model for voting. I, I happen to be a Republican who believes that people should be able to vote as easily as and, and as easily as 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 possible, and in Colorado, every voter gets sent a ballot whether they want it or not. Um, and ninety eight percent of people in Colorado vote by mail. It is completely secure. There are FBI trained analysts that check literally every single vote. When they told me that, I thought, oh come on, it's got to be a random sampling. They check every single vote to verify it, and the heritage. A foundation, which, as you know, is a very conservative operation, uh, did a study of of all the mail-in balloting in Colorado to try and find any fraud. They they uh, looked at 17 million votes. They found nine examples of of you know a fraudulent address or something like that, which was probably accidental. At least half of those. So nine out of 17 million. So I, I look, you know, my my the, the I, it drives me nuts that. The, the Republicans say, well, you know, we, we're j- this is just about the integrity of the process. Well, that's a, a solution in search of a problem. There really isn't a problem with integrity. They, you know, they tried desperately to find integrity problems in the last election. And they couldn't find them, literally like zero. Uh, Trump's lawyer, you know, was asked to say, just show us one and wasn't able to do that. Uh, Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, offered a million dollars reward for uh, examples of voter fraud. He has yet to reward a penny. So this thing's going to flesh itself out. But I, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, it's not going to happen next year. But I I just encourage all these secretaries of states and everywhere, look at Colorado. We're doing it right. It works. Well, Mark, thank you so much for for talking to Political Theater. Um, I uh, again, I you know, it, it's it's great to have not just a uh, a, a, a you know a, such a, a a guy who knows politics so well, but again, you know, a Westerner. So, thank you so much, <laughs> um, and uh, and we'd love to have you back sometime. Thank you, brother. Kick it hard. Carry on, regardless. <laughs>